From ancient tales of omnipotent and eternal deities, to hidden folkloric fairy worlds, to the wildest speculations of intergalactic and interdimensional travel, we seem always to be conceiving new ways to incorporate the possible existence of life beyond the world we know. Even the subconscious space of our dreams has been considered a potential location for beings as real as any we might find in the conscious realm. Or at least, try telling an 11-year-old who just watched A Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time that such beings aren't possible. As it happens, Wes Craven, the creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, is thought to have drawn partial inspiration for the film from the crudely labelled Asian Death Syndrome of the late 1970s and 80s. During this period, over 110 men who'd fled to America from Laos to escape a newly installed communist government are said to have fallen victim to the unusual syndrome. All died following unexplained seizures in their sleep. For others, it is precisely the possibility of what we might find in these places that scares them the most, and who could blame them, considering how many of these tales end in disaster? From the terror of Ridley Scott's Alien, where all but one of an entire spaceflight crew are wiped out by a previously unknown organism, to the damningly self-reflective satire of Gulliver's travels, travels which leave the eponymous Gulliver so appalled by humanity, he becomes a recluse. Such stories seem designed to prevent us from exploring the unknown. They are handed down to us as supposedly hard-earned truths, a warning to anyone foolish enough to venture beyond the comfort of their known environment. If it doesn't kill you, at the very least, you run the risk of discovering something about yourself you don't want to know. As a species, not only have we proven deaf to such warnings, we seem almost pathologically predisposed to ignore them. It was far easier, for example, for the British nation to celebrate the achievements of explorer Captain James Cook than to dwell on the fact that he was murdered while out on his travels at the hands of the distant savages, as they were referred, that he had supposedly discovered. And if you look at tales like that, from the point of view of those on the receiving end of efforts to colonise so-called distant and exotic lands, the business of exploration starts to look very messy indeed. But even still, we carry on regardless. We might argue that our yearning to illuminate the darkest unknown corners is driven by survival instincts. We search to understand what out there could be a threat to us. Or perhaps it is the Freudian, unconscious desire to name and conquer that ultimately drives us. Or perhaps, rather, it's simply the selfish pursuit of personal gain. Yet when we look at the incredible achievements of our species' most eminent adventurers, such as Abu Bakr II or the indomitable Jean Barre, it is possible to discern a different driving force. Abu Bakr II was ruler of a huge West African empire, considered by some to have been the largest and wealthiest ever. In 1311, he is alleged to have given it all up 
having become determined to find out just what exactly lay on the other side of the Atlantic. After leaving to do just that, Abu Bakr was never seen again. However, Malian writer and historian Professor Gasau Diawara has speculated that he may in fact have got as far as present-day Brazil during his adventures. While in 1775, Jeanne Beret, after disguising herself as a man, became the first woman to circumnavigate the globe. Look past the cynical, political motivations of the Apollo 11 moon landing, and you see it there too, in the engine fire of a Saturn V rocket. It powers NASA's Voyager space probes beyond the heliosphere toward interstellar space, blows the sails of Charles Darwin's HMS Beagle, and forms the metaphorical glue that binds the nuts and bolts of the Hubble telescope that enables us to peer ever deeper into the furthest reaches of the universe. It is the irrepressible force of human curiosity. It's this adventurous spirit that also fuels the search for other kinds of truth set apart from the pursuit of the hard sciences. We find it in the ever-seductive lure of the occult and the Gnostic philosophies, the powerful idea that beyond the realities we comprehend lie other, more majestic places just waiting to be discovered if only we had the requisite knowledge and tools to get there. In many ways, the hard science search for truth is not too dissimilar to the Gnostic or religious search for truth. Both are founded on the belief that there is more to reality than what we know, and both are equally striving to peer behind the wizard's curtain, as it were. Where they differ is in their approach. Gnostics start with the absolute conviction that there is something more to it all, some guiding hand, perhaps. Their search cannot stop until this mysterious manufacturer is revealed. This approach often leaves me wondering whether people with that inclination would ever be truly satisfied. What if we did discover one day that there was an omnipotent creator after all? It likely wouldn't take long before knowledge of this god's existence simply became part of our quotidian life, something we just took for granted. How long then before people began to wonder if that god wasn't in fact the end point of all knowledge, but was itself made by an entirely other god occupying a whole other layer of mystery, and that god made by another god, and so on and so on. Scientists, on the other hand, tend not to start with an unshakable conviction of what the end point might be, although they are more than happy to acknowledge there are things not yet known that may yet be discovered, they prefer to get there one step at a time through trial and error and the slow, methodical accumulation of empirical data. They might occasionally take a leap of faith for an idea, but if the data doesn't correlate, the idea is soon discarded. Meanwhile, for the alternative truth-seekers and transcendent philosophers, what satisfaction is to be found in the mundane scientific worlds of fields and subatomic matter 
when there are much deeper, hidden geometries to explore, far beyond the confines of standard human perception. Doubtless there is a strange comfort in contemplating things beyond our everyday practical experiences. Furthermore, it is the potential of what might be found in the unknown and unseen that gives birth to many of our wildest ideas, thoughts on consciousness, eschatology, and the very nature of reality. But might we have neglected something in all this? For what if those tales we tell of other worlds and other creatures weren't just stories, and we aren't, in fact, alone? What if it isn't only our species that is doing the exploring? You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Gwen gazes longingly at the vast blue sky as Terry turns their battered old pickup off the AR-88 Fort Duchesne. It's the summer of 1994, and the Shermans are travelling through a northern stretch of the Uintar Basin in the northeast corner of what is commonly known today as the American state of Utah. This part of the basin, which stretches out for hundreds of miles to the south, forms a clash of desert and rich pastures fed by the Uintar River and nearby Bottle Creek Reservoir. It is a stark landscape, marked by rare pockets of oases in otherwise desolate swathes of rock and dust. Some might call it the Badlands, but to others it's plain old cowboy country and everything that Gwen and Terry are looking for. The truck kicks up dust as they make their way deeper into the plains. To their right lies a 200-foot-high Mesa ridge of red dust and sandstone, one of those otherworldly structures you might think had more in common with Mars than planet Earth, while to their left a pale scrubland speckled with milky green sagebrush and spindly Russian olives stretches out to the horizon and all is framed by the widest, bluest sky you could possibly imagine. Such places have a magical quality, a hidden history that lies compressed and fossilised underground and painted onto the rocks at the back of darkened caves. It rings with a silence, but it's not the silence of emptiness, it is the silence of absence, the silence that remains when so many things have been and gone. For of course, the state hasn't always been called Utah, nor indeed has it always been a state. The vast ranges to the north haven't always been named the Uinta Mountains, and this desert basin hasn't always been a desert. Roughly 20,000 years ago, a community of bipedal, bare-skinned creatures first ventured forth towards present-day North America, walking from lands of ice and snow to the northwest across a land bridge newly emerged from the depths of once impassable waters. Confronted by walls of ice and inhospitable terrain, the intrepid pioneers were forced to remain on that bridge of land 
for thousands of years, before a thawing of the surrounding glaciers and permafrost brought new routes for them to explore. In their isolation, they'd been changing deep within their blood. When they finally move on to greener pastures to the south, they emerge new and distinct from the people they'd been before. These people, whose names have long been lost to time, are thought to be the first human inhabitants of what we now call Utah, arriving there some 13,000 years ago. Forming small communities, the first inhabitants of present-day Utah drift with the seasons, eating cattails and sedge, and crafting nets for creatures that swim and fly. They hunt with spear points made from bone and stone, expertly and delicately fluted on both sides. Just like the world of those who came before them, theirs is tuned to the cycles of the golden orb of day and the ever-changing white disk of night. Eventually they will make it as far as the stretch of land Gwen and Terry are driving through, perhaps sheltering under the Mesa Ridge to their right, or tracking animals in the scrubland to the left. Three and a half million curves through the sky of the Golden Orb later, however, surrounding waters rise and flood the basin, forcing those ancient people from the land where they will also be lost to the mists of time. A thousand years later, and a shift has taken place, and new people arrive from the southwest with bows and arrows to complement the spear. Although some are nomadic, others prefer a more stationary life, growing and harvesting crops. They wear shoes made from deer hide, make pottery and weave baskets, and paint detailed pictorials of creatures, both strange and familiar, onto the rocks of their homes. But just 700 years later, a great drought forces them too from the land. It's not long before yet another group of biped creatures arrive, this time bringing a name that is recorded in history, Nooch, which translates in English as the people. The Nooch eventually stretch out across 225,000 square miles of the surrounding deserts and prairies, building teepees and wickiups from pinyon and juniper branches. To the Nooch, the land on which they walk is a place of great power, a place revealed in dreams and made manifest by their creator, Sinawav. It includes the upper earth of mountains, a middle earth of foothills, the lower earth of the canyons, and the underworld, where the light-giving orb in the sky, they call Tavachi, rests at night. It is a land peppered with Puav, power points where tribal medicine men channel sacred forces. It is also a world populated by the Mokwich, the dead. The Nooch never venture into the places of the Mokwich, who are said to roam the abandoned homes of those who had come before. Should you ever find spiders and cobwebs in old, formerly inhabited buildings, 
that is a sign that the Mockwitch, the dead, are there. The Nooch occupy the land for many cycles of the Golden Orb, living out a mostly peaceful existence in harmony with the elements of their world, taking only what they need and fighting only to defend the territory that is crucial to their survival. Unknown to the Nooch, however, there is a whole other world that occupies the exact same space as theirs, and it is beginning to press in on them. Some Nooch have already heard of this parallel world, populated by people similar in some ways, but different in others. As they soon discover, it is a place made not by Sinawav, but by God Almighty. In this other world, time is different, and the Nooch are instead called Utah. There it is the year 1620, the same number of years they are told, since a man named Christ was sent to earth to die for everybody's sins. Early exchanges with this other world's people bring occasional riches, such as the majestic and powerful horses that will later strengthen their communities. There are new ideas, too, that help the Nooch make better sense of their own world, discovering, for example, that the golden orb in the sky is not moving into darkness each night, but rather it is they and the land they stand on that is moving around it. But sometimes, those from the other world will make raids into Nooch communities and steal their people away to be reared as slaves. More and more, this other world presses in on that of the Nooch until it has enveloped it completely, and they have little option but to leave their world behind. By this new world's year of 1864, the land occupied by the Nooch, now referred to as Ute by the newcomers, has been declared owned by the United States of America. An agreement is reached to establish a small area of territory for the Nooch, along with other tribes such as the Uncompagre, Yampa and White River, to call their own. For 15 years, they are rounded up and escorted into this designated area, known as the Uinta and Ure Reservation. No longer free to move with the seasons, the tribe's people struggle to adapt to their zone, an area that is largely dry and poor for hunting. When asphaltum, a highly profitable mineral, is discovered within this territory, it transpires that the 1864 agreement is not quite as final as it had first seemed. 7,000 acres of reservation territory is quickly reclaimed by the US government and given to the mining industry. By 1905, the reservation has diminished to a quarter of its initial size. Terry Sherman brings the truck to a halt. He and Gwen have finally reached their destination, a 480-acre stretch of ranch, surrounded on all sides by the Uinta and Ure Reservation. Up ahead lies the Myers Ranch House, peeking out from under a row of grand cottonwoods. 
although it is true that the ranch occupies land that was once part of the original reservation. Some claim the Nooch were only too happy to be rid of it. Unknown to Terry and Gwen, it is said that something peculiar stalks these pastures, something not recorded in any of the history books, and the Nooch are terrified of it. A deep yellow sun hangs in the sky as the Sherman step from the cool of their truck into the dry summer heat and make their way towards the house. Terry runs a hand through his hair before replacing his cap, trying his best not to look too excited as the estate agent approaches. The building, perched at the base of the Mesa Ridge and backed by a wide irrigation canal, is a modest-sized bungalow in need of some care and attention. Inside, wallpaper, not changed since the 70s, peels from the walls and ceiling, while bags of rubbish are strewn throughout the place. As the Shermans enter the property, it's hard not to think of the previous owner, living out there all on her own. Gwen drifts from room to room, and though she is excited about the prospect of making this their home, she can't help feeling there is something off about the place. Then she sees it. Every internal door appears to have a deadbolt lock, drilled onto it, inside and out, and all the windows too. Gwen is nudging one of the locks shut when Terry calls to her from outside. She steps out the door to find him holding a heavy chain in his hands that has been bolted securely to the front of the house. Must have been some dog to warrant this, says Terry. I guess so, Gwen replies before being suddenly distracted by the breathtaking view. From here, she can see the full acreage of the grassy paddocks and scrublands to the south and west, cut through by Dry Gulch Creek, and bordered to the north by the irrigation canal and sandstone ridge that run in parallel all the way to the far western border. As she takes it all in, it feels as if they've lived there their whole lives. Later, after taking a walk through the fields, Gwen and Terry stumble upon the old homestead, a dilapidated stucco cabin built in the early 1900s but now warped and rotted after years under the baking desert sun. How uncanny it looks, they think, almost as if it were still inhabited, with its rusted drainpipe chimney still intact and sticking out through the roof the old floral-patterned lino inside, just visible under a thick carpet of dead leaves. Inside, Gwen spies numerous cobwebs and spiders clinging to every corner and can almost feel the presence of the building's previous occupiers. It's just when they're walking back to the house that Terry notices something peculiar hidden under the thick, dry grass of one of the pastures, a circular indentation roughly three feet wide and at least one foot deep in the ground. Even stranger is that the soil underneath seems compacted as if whatever had made the marking hadn't dug the soil out of the ground but had come down on it from above and compressed it into the earth. 
It's a grey, overcast day. When the Shermans return later in the autumn, the proud new owners of the Myers Ranch, they arrive with all their worldly goods on two heavily laden trucks. With the help of Terry's father, Addison, Gwen and Terry's 11-year-old son, T, and 9-year-old daughter, Kay, lead the way, picking out pieces from the top of the truck and handing them down to the grown-ups. Terry is just returning for another load when he notices his son staring at something across the pasture, picking its way through the field and heading straight towards them. What is that? Coyote? asks Gwen, having just clocked it too. Nah, too big for that, says Terry, not taking his eyes off the animal. The family watch as the creature draws near until they can make out its silver-grey fur as the unmistakable hide of a wolf. Gwen looks anxiously towards the kids, who far from being scared, seem quietly mesmerised by the creature. Terry takes a step forward, scanning the distance behind for any sign of a pack, then looks nervously toward the animal paddock. One of the three calves that arrived that morning, having sensed a shift in the air, has wandered up to the fence and stuck its head inquiringly between the slats. All the while, the wolf trots closer and closer, its head bobbing beneath its shoulders until it's barely ten yards away. At least it looks like a wolf, thinks Terry, even if it's twice the size of any he's ever seen before. Stranger yet is the pale blue electricity of its eyes. A crossbreed, perhaps, he wonders, the creature keeps on coming until it's at Addison's legs, close enough for the old man to run his hand through its thick, wet fur. It must have come from the reservation, he says to the others. The wolf arches its back under Addison's hand and brushes against his legs with all the playfulness of an old family dog. Gwen waves for the kids to come down and join them. Can we keep it? asks Kay. Before Terry can respond, the wolf is already in motion, heading straight for the corral. A moment later, the six-month-old Angus calf is squealing in agony, its snout caught tight inside the wolf's jaws. Gwen backs the children away, as Addison pulls a baseball bat from the truck. He brings it down hard onto the wolf's back as Terry tries to kick it free from the calf. Get the magnum, screams Terry. T leaps onto the truck, pulls the magnum from its holster and runs it over to his father. Yelling for his son and Addison to step away, Terry gives the barrel a quick check before snapping it back into place and squeezing the trigger. The shot thunders into the animal, but the wolf doesn't back down. Gwen does her best to shield Kay's eyes as Terry takes another step closer and fires a second slug into the wolf's chest. But again, there's nothing, not even a whimper. The exhausted calf sinks to the ground, its wide eyes rolling back in terror as it waits for death. Terry shoots again, 
seeing the bullet clearly thud into the wolf's stomach. Finally, it releases the prey and stumbles back a few yards. The calf collapses backwards, panting heavily as blood pours from its nose. The next bullet enters around the wolf's heart. It stands, unmoved for one more beat, fixes Terry with its electric blue eyes, and then simply trots away. Get me the rifle, says Terry calmly. T runs into the house and returns soon after, carrying a sniper rifle. The wolf has stopped 30 yards away. Terry takes the gun and raises the sight to his eye, then pulls the trigger. They all gasp as the bullet rips through the wolf's body, but the wolf remains unmoved. It stares Terry down. Terry fires again. This time, the bullet visibly tears flesh and fur from the creature's chest, but without as much as a whimper, the wolf eyes the calf one last time, before finally turning away and heading off back in the direction from which it had come. Addison, in a state of disbelief, wanders towards the piece of flesh torn off by the bullet. When he bends down to pick it up, he recoils in disgust. The meat is putrid and riddled with the stench of decay. Terry will later attempt to track the wolf down and kill it once and for all. He follows its clear set of footprints for over a mile into the bush before they inexplicably disappear from the land. And all that was just day one. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 10, Into the Badlands, Part 1 of 3. Part 2 will be released next Friday, November 17th. This episode was written by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.